Australian journalist and filmmaker John Pilger has died in London at the age of 84. Mr Pilger grew up in Bondi before his journalism career took him all over the globe as he worked for mastheads such as Reuters and the Daily Mirror. He was an opponent of Western foreign policy and remained apprised on domestic issues such as the plight of Indigenous Australians. Leading the tributes to Pilger on social media was former ABC journalist Quinton Dempster, who wrote, Pilger exposed atrocity, war crimes, abuse of power, dispossession, hypocrisy and dirty tricks around the world in a life of fearless truth-telling. May he rest in peace. Hello, everyone. You've just heard an obituary for the renowned investigative journalist John Pilger, who passed away on the 30th of December 2023, aged 84. During his decades-long career, Pilger authored 10 books, countless articles, and produced over 60 documentary films. This immense body of work focused on exposing the crimes of empire, specifically the currently dominant US empire and its lackeys around the world. Pilger's work gave an international voice to the empire's victims, from the children burnt with napalm in Vietnam to those dying from depleted uranium in Iraq. He also shone a light on the empire's economic victims, from predatory loans in the Philippines to sweatshops in Indonesia. Finally, he did not exclude empire's domestic victims, from conscripted soldiers sent to fight in wars they didn't understand, to disabled children on the sharp end of government cuts, to those disabled by thalidomide fighting for compensation. His work always seemed to come from a place of genuine compassion, juxtaposed with a genuine and righteous anger. I have a sense that I was vaguely aware of who John Pilger was, even as a teenager. Such was his status in the media. The first article of his I actively recall reading, however, was published in the British newspaper, The Daily Mirror, in 2003. I can actually tell you exactly it was published on Wednesday the 29th of January 2003, and was accompanied by an iconic front page of Tony Blair with blood on his hands, as the headline confirmed. I know this precisely because the then editor of the Daily Mirror, Piers Morgan, posted the cover to his Twitter feed on John Pilger's passing. I'm happy to report that a lot of Mr Morgan's followers have informed him that John Pilger also made a film on Palestine that he might consider watching. As I recall, the article demolished the case for war with Iraq, from weapons of mass destruction to humanitarian intervention, inside two or three pages. It wasn't until 2011 that I sat down and properly read Pilger's work. I'd taken an interest in geopolitics and conspiracy theory when I was younger, but had found the whole thing intellectually overwhelming and had stepped back for a number of years. John's work was a big part of my jumping back in, and I read my way through five of his books and watched all available documentaries. I emerged from this profoundly changed in my worldview. The idea that we live in some sort of empire became real for me in a way it never had been before. John showed the same imperial patterns repeating through different decades, countries and administrations, pointing to something consistent beyond the changing faces. I think his work also conveyed the sense of telling history from the victim's perspective. It's one thing to discuss the geostrategic reasons for the United States' prosecution of its many foreign interventions. It's quite another to hear from the real people, 
whose lives have been torn up by the games these high lords play. In light of his passing, I wanted to do some kind of tribute. Perhaps it will encourage some people to look directly at his documentary work, and for me, it's an excuse to re-watch them. His body of work is far too big to cover in a single episode. So in this episode, I'm going to play some clips that sample his various documentaries on Vietnam, an area he specialised in for many years. In this first clip, John is summarising just some of what the Vietnamese people were put through. Vietnam was napalm. Napalm was a chemical made especially to stick to human skin and to fry people slowly. In my first innocent days here, I saw napalm dropped. It exploded like huge puffs of blood. And when it had cleared, a child ran screaming and engulfed in flames. Vietnam was people shot and laid out like rabbits so that the photographers and TV teams could get the best angles. And of course, they are all Viet Cong, even the babies. Vietnam was atrocities you never knew about, of pictures never sent and never published because it was believed that you might be offended. Vietnam was riding on a helicopter with a heap of dead and dying young GIs and one of them saying just before he died that his mother believed that Vietnam was somewhere near Panama. Vietnam was drug addicted kids selling jasmine here in the streets of Saigon and grey suited men thousands of miles away mouthing relentless platitudes about peace with honour. Above all Vietnam was a war of rampant technology against people. For me, it was always difficult to walk away from them, but even more difficult to look them in the eyes, and it still is. In 1966, America began the longest campaign in the history of aerial bombardment, aimed at North Vietnam. The fact that civilians were targeted was reported by very few Western journalists, among them James Cameron and Harrison Salisbury. Salisbury, an American, was vilified as a traitor. The tonnage of bombs dropped was many times greater than Hiroshima. This is Hongai, a coal mining and fishing town on the Gulf of Tonkin. The bombing here was more concentrated than even Dresden. Day after day, week after week, American carrier-based planes came in low over one of the most beautiful landscapes in Asia. I was one of the few outsiders to see the results. At this Catholic church, mass had just finished when it was destroyed by a direct hit. When I came here in 1975, I found this letter pinned to a classroom wall in the rubble of the school. It read, My name is Nguyen Tian. I am 15 years old. When I heard the air raid siren and the explosions, I hurried to the shelters. When I came out, my sister was lying there. She had pins all over her. The street where this family lived was hit by a new kind of bomb that sprayed small darts about the size of a pin. The darts had entered Tian's sister and continued to move about in her body for several days, causing her an agonizing death. 
They were made from a synthetic material difficult to detect under X-ray. They've since been used in wars from the Middle East to the Falklands to the Gulf, having been successfully tested here. In this next clip, John is walking around a Vietnamese hospital. He's talking to a nurse about the injuries inflicted upon children. Most of our injuries, war-related injuries, are our mines, and second are grenades, third are artillery and gunshot. But primarily, our biggest problem is kids stepping on mines, and that is the same problem that existed in 1972. And I think it's very interesting to note that that's covered in the peace accords and the peace agreement. Is, I think it's Article 7 or Article 15, I'm not really sure, which says that 15 days, at, oh, there's where the 15 comes in, 15 days after the ceasefire, um, all mines will begin being cleared. We have seen nothing um, that, that has happened in that area at all. This is, of course, over a year after the ceasefire now. This kid was injured last September, and um, his father sells gasoline. And when the two sides were fighting, some stray bullets came into his house, and the gasoline was set off, and this kid was very, very badly burned. He not only has burns on his face, but also on his legs and his feet. You can see that his feet are pretty badly contracted. He probably has trouble walking. It's a very severe problem for kids like this. There just isn't the kind of plastic surgery around to take care of them. How old is he? Seven years old. He looks very much in shock still, doesn't he? He's a pretty sad kid. Her name is Tung Win. And what happened to her? She was out taking care of cows, and she, she stepped on a mine. It's the same old story, isn't it? Yes. And she's lost her right leg below the knee. She may be an AK. Let's look. Yeah, below the knee. That's right. So she, she probably stepped on one of those little foot bombs. Yeah. yeah. Because kids will go on stepping on grenades and mines for years to come, I imagine. Right. And uh, that's a, a new problem now. We see a lot of that happening now. Um, How old is Jinti High? She's 16. She was out cutting um, uh, rau, uh, vegetables. You know, so there's a green vegetable that grows that people eat here a lot. She was out cutting that to gather for family, and she stepped on a mine. These were the strictly anti-personnel, anti as they called them. Oh, yeah. Right. Might flatten a front wheel on a bicycle, but... Thing it's best at doing is taking our feet. John Pilger hated the way Hollywood depicted the war as being all about American suffering, ignoring the Vietnamese or casting them as vicious. He did, however, focus on the suffering of the American conscript, the grunt, forced to fight and die. In fact, it was the subject of his very first documentary. I hadn't been to Vietnam for three years. The war, after all, is a bore, so why go back? What is there left to say? Surely we've seen it all on telly. But our boredom has not made the war go away, so I've come back for the final act. No blood, no atrocities. Just the rejection of the war by those sent here to fight it. Just the quiet mutiny of the greatest army in history. This is Snuffy, some eight miles from the Cambodian border in a wilderness of jungle and mud controlled by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. Snuffy is a beleaguered fort defended by the 1st Air Cavalry Division. The scene there looks so familiar, like a faded snapshot of another war we wish to forget half a century ago with its trenches and mud and barbed wire and boredom and young men and their puppies. Snuffy is important because it's the end of the line for the grunts. 
They are the 18-year-old drafted kids, the national servicemen on whom the entire army depends. They are the ones to whom the buck has finally passed, from the President and the Pentagon and the career men who catch coals in their air-conditioned command posts. Out of 400,000 American soldiers in Vietnam, only 80,000 fight, and almost all of them are grunts. Grunts in 1970 are a very different kind of American foot soldier. They are mostly from a world unknown to their commanders. They are the graduates of an American rebellion that stemmed from the war they have been sent here to fight. And quietly but massively, they have brought that rebellion with them here to Vietnam. For the grunts are unraveling the very fabric of the military. They are growing their hair, wearing love beads, smoking pot, flourishing the V sign of peace. And some are refusing to fight. The young men you see in this film are not a selected griping minority. I've spoken to hundreds of young soldiers and the rebellion they feel so deeply is everywhere. I don't want to see communism spread all over the world. Nothing I can do about it. Just stay and do my time, which I'm going to do. Get, get out of Vietnam, go back to the world. I couldn't see any purpose in the war back home. I, you know, it never explained to me why we're actually here. And I, you know, I really had nothing against these people. I want to kill them. And you go out in the woods and they'll shoot at you first. You'll see them, you know, they'll shoot you if they get the chance. You have to shoot at them first. It's really bad. I still don't know why I'm here. That's God's truth. Three months and I don't know why I'm shooting these people. If I had to do over again, I would go to jail. For one thing, in California, the max usually that you're going to get is three years. Okay, what's three years in the jail compared to two years in Nam or three years in the Army? I don't really think that... Uh, there is going to be another generation of American soldier. I think that people are just tired of it. There's, you know, there will be people in the army, but uh, the people that really feel strong about it aren't going to go in. A few months ago, when I was in the United States, this letter was given to me by a woman who lives in a small town in Ohio. The letter was written by her son, Kenneth, while he was serving in the infantry in Vietnam. I'd like to read it. Hello, Mom. Well, the shit has really started here. I've been in combat two months now, almost since the day I got here. I'm so confused about it, all I think some days is I'm going crazy. These people, the gooks, hate me, hate us all. So why am I almost dying for them? All the guys who are putting themselves on the line are grunts like me. We don't think this war is worth dying for. We don't think the lifers who won't fight are worth dying for. We've talked this out and we've decided to tell the company commander we're not working and walking into that bush again. At least we'll go to jail where it's safe. The afternoon Kenneth wrote that letter, he was killed. The telegram his parents received said he had died a brave man while storming a Viet Cong bunker. The medals they received said much the same thing. And the box they received in which their son lay was marked this way up, unviewable. I suppose some of you watching this film will say it's peddling the anti-American line yet again. Well, perhaps another kind of person could make another kind of film. But I've lived in America and I've been in the mud of America's war in Vietnam. And I do know that thousands of young American soldiers, like the grunts of Snuffy, are fighting an enemy that isn't called Gook. It's called the US Army. And that takes guts. Out on patrol, one of my friends was the medic. And when I was leaving, he said to me, hey man, Tell them back in the world we're coming home, and we're never coming back. John also exposed both the delusions, the callous indifference, and the realizations arrived at by once true believers. 
I wish there was more appreciation shown on the Vietnamese part. We spend uh, quite a flow of this. This was the starting point for the Chinese takeover of all Southeast Asia, which hasn't stopped and won't stop for years. But had it not been stopped here, this part of the country or this part of the world and these people would have been as isolated as China is today and has been for over 20 years. And it wouldn't stop there. There would be Taiwan and Japan and then anything else that they felt that they could just sort of, uh, like a plague, go over the top and isolate to become their people. And that's what would have happened. But we stood up to them. We stopped them. We put the fear of God in, more or less speak. And uh, hopefully this has stemmed the flow now. I think it was all worth it. Definitely. Definitely. Every, every, every limb that was lost and every individual sitting back in a veteran's hospital now and every death, it's, I think it's all worth it. I surely do. Could I, could I ask you, do you think it was worth it? Do you think that 52,000 deaths here was worth... 52,000 deaths... American were, deaths. Were 52,000 American deaths are less than we lose in traffic in one year. You don't even miss it. But, but here you are in a situation... It wasn't a great war, but it was the only war we had. Right? I chose Vietnam, and I chose infantry, and I absolutely believed that we were here to repel this massive communist invasion from the north on the freedom-loving people of the south. And uh, it didn't take long actually fighting the war over here to have that explode into the myth that it was, you know, confronting the reality of what was going on in this country. In a theme he would repeat in Iraq and more broadly across the world, he also covered the sheer scale of the environmental damage and its human impact. The secret history of Vietnam was also the chemical war, the spraying of a deadly poison called dioxin. Its aim was to destroy the forests where the Viet Cong were, and it was confined to South Vietnam, which America had come to save. The spraying was called Operation Hades and was hardly reported at the time. And when it was, it was changed to the friendlier Operation Ranch Hand, and the spraying continued. Dioxin is a thousand times more powerful than thalidomide. I saw many forests destroyed, die, all these uh, dead trees, nothing, no animals, no birds. About two million hectares of the tropical forests of our country completely destroyed by herbicide. These American soldiers are hosing down vegetation with that poisonous herbicide. Half of Vietnam's mangrove forests were destroyed in this way. In 1970, the U.S. Senate was told, the United States has dumped on South Vietnam a quantity of toxic chemical amounting to six pounds for every man, woman, and child. These men are planting trees in one of the world's most remarkable regreening campaigns. Every school child in Vietnam plants at least one tree a year. In this way, millions of hectares of forest have been reclaimed, with little outside help and few resources. It is one of Vietnam's greatest post-war achievements, 
And this is the result. The Earth has come alive again. The human cost of the chemical war is all too evident. Deformed children are more likely to be conceived in Vietnam than almost anywhere in the world. In 1994, the link between the herbicide known as Agent Orange and cancer was confirmed by the Australian government. American and Australian veterans have now been compensated for what Agent Orange did to them. The Vietnamese have received nothing. Hospitals like this one have appealed for the most basic equipment and have been ignored. Last year, how many malformed babies were born in this hospital? Uh, last year, we have um, uh, 266 mm. case uh, malformation. 266. Yeah. yeah, in the hospital. Mm. And you've been getting that kind of figure over the years, haven't you? I think uh, it's the north and higher, but it's the same. About the same, the same since, I think, same. about the mid, the end of the 1960s. Is that correct? It started to go up. Yes, yes, it started to go up. Mm -hmm. In 1978, President Jimmy Carter rejected an appeal for aid for Vietnam. He said, the damage was mutual. We owe them nothing. Finally, he returned to Vietnam years after the war to assess the long-term economic colonization of the country. Perhaps what the war had really been about, if it was about anything at all. With the Americans finally gone, Vietnam was made an international pariah. The United States mounted an embargo that covered both trade and humanitarian aid and used its influence to sabotage loans from the World Bank that would have prevented starvation. One of Margaret Thatcher's first acts in coming to power was to ban shipments of powdered milk to Vietnamese children. The Hanoi government had hoped to end their dependence on the Soviet Union, but the blockade gave them nowhere else to turn. Such were the spoils of victory. In the late 1980s, the Vietnamese government declared a policy they called Doi Moi, or Our Way. The aim was to break out of the economic siege. The so-called free market was embraced, foreigners were welcomed, and the embargo began to crumble. At the same time, personal freedom was encouraged and people began to speak and criticize openly. As a friend of mine put it, color returned to our lives. But behind the move towards greater personal liberty were dramatic changes in the economy. These were based on the belief or the delusion that the rapid growth of a new consumer class could bring prosperity to all. Today, Vietnam has been declared an open marketplace and its people a cheap labor pool, with wages for skilled work as low as 20 pounds a month. As one American banker put it, the circus is back in town. In other words, a carve-up is taking place. America effectively runs the currency. Japan dominates the money lending, Singapore the property market, and Taiwan and Korea the sweatshops. The French and Australians are doing nicely too, with the British not far behind. And as the roads fill up, 
and the air pollutes, the Vietnamese sink deep into debt to those who once profited from their suffering. Foreigners discovering Vietnam have little contact with the countryside where 90% of the people live and where for all the hardship there was once equality. The new free market policies are changing all that. Some of the first reforms were welcomed, but under a law drafted by the World Bank, the old system of rich landowners and tenant farmers is coming back. The system that Ho Chi Minh fought against and in doing so won the support of the majority. At this village in the south, they used to share everything. Now cooperatives are a thing of the past, and a middleman has moved in, paying this woman and her 12-year-old daughter a dollar a day between them to make beach mats for export. They work from five in the morning till five at night, and as education is no longer free, the girl has to work to pay for her lessons. It is the people, said Ho Chi Minh, who must have priority. His name may soon become an embarrassment for those in power claiming his legacy. If you believe these things are planned, then maybe this was the plan all along, as America could have had relations with Vietnam from the start. Ho Chi Minh preferred dealing of them than the classic threat, the Chinese. But the country was left-wing and not conductive to American business interests. Vietnam has a secret history that is full of irony. It was here in the center of Hanoi on September the 2nd, 1945, that the great nationalist Ho Chi Minh declared independence from the French. All men, he began, are created equal, endowed with the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ho took those words straight from the American Declaration of Independence. And when he asked the crowd filling this square, do you hear me, comrades? His appeal was also directed at the United States. Indeed, he resisted accepting aid from both China and the Soviet Union while he sent secret messages to Washington, to which he received not a single reply. Instead, and incredibly, America cast Vietnam as part of a Chinese-led communist conspiracy, and on the basis of this mockery of the truth, began 30 years of war. Thank you for listening. There's a link to John Pilger's filmography in the info box. I'm going to do at least one follow-up of this with a guest who will talk about how John's work influenced him. <laughs>